Today's read, Midnight and the Meaning of Love by Sister Soja, Part 2, Japan Story, Chapter 6, Close. Chiasa was in my bed. She looked asleep, but I wasn't so sure. Was she sleeping or pretending to sleep? She was wearing all her clothes, a new outfit from yesterday. I stood behind my now-closed door, not wanting to get too close to her, revealing my private scenario and sense. 35 minutes to sunrise, she said, shifting. I brought you some food. Without turning and looking at me, she raised one arm and pointed toward my desk. There was a box, wrapped in a silky scarf and a canteen. You found her? she asked. I didn't reply. No refunds, she said softly. After my swift, thorough, hot shower, I ate one rice triangle and a few spoonfuls of peanut butter and drank water. Chiasa had green tea in the canteen. When I didn't drink it, she did. She stood now outside on the terrace at sunrise as I made the prayer. Wait for me, I told her. I have important work for you to do with me today, she agreed. Seated in the window with Chiasa seated on the fire escape, I told her, I'm going back to New York, either tonight or tomorrow. I'll need your help at the travel agency to change my ticket and to buy another ticket as well. But the most important thing is, I need you to translate for me and my girl at 2 o'clock sharp today at Rapungi Station. Chiasa sat quietly for two whole minutes. How did it happen? She asked. How did what happen? You and her, without understanding one another. I smiled. My whole body was relaxed now and my mind at peace. We understand one another. We just don't speak the same language. Chiasa stared at me. Her pretty eyes were searching me with a deep curiosity. I turned my eyes from hers. She inhaled and said softly, That's so fucking cool. I gotta sleep some, I admitted. Me too, she said quietly. I was up all night. How come, I asked her. She ignored my question. This made me think she wanted me to ask her again. Or maybe I really was curious. How come? I asked again. I read through all those papers from the Nakamura building, searching for clues. Finally, I found out the name of Ikeda-san's hometown. I went there to his house. I walked around there. Must have been 22 times. Waited in an alley behind the house for you, she said. I didn't say nothing. I just sat quietly thinking... A wave of feeling came over me like it does sometimes when a female reveals her admiration for me. I was grateful toward Chiasa, deeply grateful. Do you want me to meet you at your house later, or would you rather us meet up at 145 in Rapongi at the station, I asked her. No, I'll sleep on the floor right here. You sleep on the bed. When we wake up, we gotta go to Shinjuku. You have to check out of there this morning, she said. I don't have nothing over there. And I paid them up front, I corrected her. Yes, but I left my jacket, remember? 
I stood up from the windowsill and invited her in. This would be me and her last day together. So I decided not to worry if her feelings would grow. You sleep on the bed. I'll sleep on the floor, I told her. She lay down, her back facing me. I sat down on the floor, my back against the wall. It was 6 a.m. We slept. Harajuku streets were jammed. In addition to the strange things that normally went on there, someone, for some reason, had trucked in a plastic slice of strawberry shortcake 20 feet tall and 10 feet wide. The Japanese crowd of teens seemed fascinated by it. They gathered around in hordes to take pictures of it, lean into and pose up close on it, and linger around it. Japan is weird, I thought to myself, and for once in my life, perhaps because I had only been here for two and a half days, I could not tell by listening or watching what was going on in their minds or culture. Chiasa's electric blue Kawasaki Ninja 250R was mean and pretty. It was parked on a street behind the Shinjuku hostel. She swung her leg around and mounted the deep blue leather seat. If she were in Brooklyn, Harlem, Queens, or the Bronx pushing this, she would have all the hustlers sweating her hard. I was glad she was in Tokyo, where the males didn't seem to notice or distinguish the beauty, elegance, and exquisiteness of one female or the other. See, it's perfect. No one even touched it, she said, smiling and surveying its body. She hopped off then, opened a seat compartment, and pulled out her blue leather riding gloves and her goggles. Then she put them right back. Her helmet was there, on the bike, unbothered. She left it there. I guess she'd made her point. When we reached the front of Shinjuku Uchi, Chiasa reached up and pulled a coin from the top of the cement gargoyle. You see, it's still here, she smiled and laid the coin in my palm. It was a Japanese coin worth $5. Japanese people don't steal, she emphasized sweetly. We collected her jacket, which was lying on my old bed the same way she had tossed it. The room, with no lock, seemed undisturbed, but I was still glad I had moved out. As we left, the front desk attendant, who I had not encountered before, presented me with an envelope. Thank you very much, he bowed some. Inside is your receipt and you have one message. Thanks, I told him, and forgot him in the same second. I pulled the papers out of the envelope until I found the message. It was written in Japanese on otherwise blank stationery. As Chiasa and I pushed out into the noon Shinjuku sun, I handed her the paper. Read it to me, I told her. Meet Akimi in Shibuya at 2 at Hachiko on Tuesday, Chiasa translated. Who's Akimi? she asked. Who signed the message? I questioned. No one. I guess it's from Akimi, right? She asked, trying to connect the dots. Is there a date and time on the message? I asked her. No, nothing else, she said, flipping the small square stationery back and forth. I can go check it out. She did a turn and went back in the hostel. She returned and said, 
The front desk clerk said he wasn't the one who received the message. He just clocked in at 11 this morning. He said that since no employees signed or dated the message, it must have been hand-delivered. The sun had erased every trace of morning mist. The streets were dry and clean as if it hadn't rained in Tokyo in months. With the noon sun massaging me, I stood thinking, my eyes squinting for protection and Chiasa's big eyes just slits as she squinted also, then placed her hand over her eyes to block or lessen the sun's significance. It was impossible for my wife to know where I was staying when I first arrived in Tokyo. How could she? Only me and Chiasa and Customs knew where I would be staying. My suspicions began to intensify. Scenarios of every kind were lining up in my mind. Perhaps Iwa's phone registered the return number to the payphone in the Shinjuku hostel. She called the number back. Some resident answered and Iwa said, what location is this? The resident answered her truthfully. Afterward, Iwa told Akimi where I was staying. Akimi had hand-delivered the message yesterday. She was so excited to meet up with me that she forgot to sign it or explain anything else. That's why when I saw her early this morning in Rapongi, she seemed to have expected to see me, although not in her bedroom window. The second scenario taking place in my mind. Iwa Ikeda told her father that I was here in Tokyo after she discovered that I was in Narita Airport. Her father told Akimi's father, and Naoko had this note delivered to draw me out to a location of his choosing. It was a trap, or a more deadly possibility. Naoko knew now that his daughter had allowed a man, an unexpected, unwelcome son-in-law, into his home and into her. Furious, he pressured his daughter to reveal our secret and she sent someone to Shinjuku to change the meetup place. Maybe it was Iwa who delivered the message. Maybe Iwa never told her father or Naoko where I was staying, if she knew. Maybe Iwa was really for our love and marriage and not against it. Nine scenarios had lined up in my mind split into two and became 18. If this dilemma had involved myself and Uma, I would have known exactly what to do in less than a second. Uma and I always do exactly what we promised to do, exactly as we stated it to one another, and we let no one interfere or interrupt or confuse any words we say to one another, mother and son, that was our way. But Akimi and I are newlyweds, our first month of marriage had been interrupted, manipulated, and stolen. Now, I was certain of my movements, but not of hers. Chiasa's golden skin baked more brown in the sun. She was silent, patient, waiting for instructions. My sentinel, and a sharp one, too. What did you see at Iwa's house last night? I asked her suddenly. It was a quiet and residential neighborhood in Kichijoji. Kichijoji? How far away is that from here? About 17 minutes on the Chuao line, she responded. I mean, Kichijoji has plenty of nightlife, restaurants and stores and shops and everything. 
but where Ikeda-san's house was located, it was dark and quiet. Oh yes, the pretty car drove right by me when I first got there about 12.30 a.m. It pulled out and left way before me at about 1.30, she reported. The Japanese Bentley, right? I asked. Hi, that one, she confirmed. I stood thinking. I need you to get to Shibuya by 1.45, I announced. It's almost 1. Shibuya's close. Four stops from here on the Yamon- Yamanote line, she said. Are you riding your bike, I asked. No, Shibuya is crazy. There are so many people there. The train is easier. What do I do at Shibuya, she asked. Go to Hachiko, just like the note says. What is that anyway, Hachiko? Is it a cafe or a restaurant, I asked. Chiasa laughed. No, it's a dog. A dog? It's a famous statue of a dog. Everyone in Japan knows it. Also, it's a meetup spot for lovers and people all around the world looking for new lovers. She monitored my response. My jaw tightened at her description. Yet the good thing about her words was that now I felt sure that Akimi had not left that note. Go there and film at that exact location. If you see a Japanese girl there waiting, 16 years old, wearing the most expensive shoes available in Tokyo, carrying a mean-ass handbag and with a smile that is only second to her beautiful eyes, that's her. Introduce yourself and tell her you are the translator for Midnight and that she should meet me in Yoyogi Park. I'll be there at 3 p.m. I planned aloud as I spoke. I was fairly confident that I would be bringing Akimi to meet Chiasa in Yoyogi Park and not the other way around. Where in Yoyogi? At my house, Chiasa asked. On the bench in the park outside your house, I told Chiasa, whose eyes were also intense and lovely, although I had the feeling that no man had ever told her so. She hesitated for some seconds, and then we both walked, headed to Shinjuku Station, where we separated and went in different directions. Thoughts about the power, range, and reach of Naoko Nakamura raced through my previously calm state of mind. Still, I was at ease feeling that I had gotten the better of him. Only 30 hours after my arrival at Narita Airport, I had invaded his territory and didn't have to snatch or seize his daughter the way he had. She came eagerly, passionately to me, separating herself from his idea of me. She had chosen me over him again. Besides, I knew his address, and now that I had seen Akimi, I could climb into her tent anytime. So I suppressed his name and face from my mind's eye. In Rapongi early, I played with the idea of getting a haircut. I had not even powered up the clippers that Amir's father gifted me. My last cut was four days ago before game time, but when I leaned my face against the barber's window and saw a place packed with exclusively Japanese heads and four elderly Japanese barbers, I decided against it. Maybe tomorrow. 
Why experiment and fuck up my head right before meeting my wife in the brilliant Tokyo sunlight? Pink pumps. I recognized her shoes. She was not my wife, but she was wearing the pink pumps that had been outside my wife's house last night. So, I paid attention. She seemed nervous, took quick glances my way, and then dropped her head down and continued to walk in my direction as she appeared to be watching her own feet. It was five minutes after two. She passed me by. As I watched her, I caught her looking back. She tried to play it off, but soon turned back toward me. Now she looked up at me and then toward the cafe situated behind me. She walked past me again. My eyes followed her into the cafe. I looked around the outside to see if Akimi was approaching from any direction, but she wasn't. When I checked the cafe window, Pink Pumps was still standing there watching me. I went over. As I entered the cafe, she moved away from the window to a back booth. I hesitated to walk up on her. She seemed like she was fragile, might break in half, or worse, start screaming for the police. So I went to the cash register instead, ordering coffee I would not drink. When I turned back to take a look, she was speaking to a waitress softly in Japanese. She stood up and both girls began bowing to each other. I couldn't interpret what was happening. I left the che- I left the cafe to check again for Akimi. Mayonaka. The name spoken in that way in the Japanese accent and a soft tone sent a rush and a current through me. I turned to check the voice with the person. It was Pink Pumps. Follow is all she said, not looking up at me or even acknowledging my presence. I followed her. She walked down into a side street and ducked into a photo booth and closed the curtain behind her. I stood outside the curtain. Akimi-san was taken away this morning, I heard her voice say in English, but I had to strain to hear and listen. Taken away by who? Father. Taken where? Kyoto. Why? I don't know. Maybe for school. Maybe for keep away. Keep away? From you? I don't know. Who are you? I asked, but she was silent. Who are you? I asked again. You don't believe? She asked me strangely. Okay, I leave now. Wait, I said calmly. I stood thinking. When was she taken? Early morning surprise, she answered me. What did Akimi tell you to tell me? Akimi-san is very sad. She says sorry a thousand times. She say her father is too determined. What did her father do to her, I asked. Father gave Akimi-san everything, but now he say no more money, no more travel, no more credit card, no more bank account, no more freedom. Why? You will never understand. You are foreigner. This is our way. This is Japan, she said. It was the strongest tone that she used through the whole conversation. Then, three Japanese boys gathered and hung back behind me at the photo booth and waited as though I was online to use it also. How come you find out to meet Akimi here at two o'clock, she asked. I had to repeat her question to myself to dissect it. 
She was trying to figure out how Akimi and I had communicated and set up a meeting, and now I knew. Are you Iwa? I asked her, but she was silent. Can you give me Akimi's address in Kyoto, a phone number or something? I asked her. I give. You will find on the seat when I leave here. Time's up. I go, she said. Wait, why did you come to me, I asked, since she was obviously nervous, uncomfortable, and didn't even want to face me. Akimi-san, do a bad thing to fall in love with you. This Anna to her father. This Anna to my father, our family and friends. But I think she not recover from this love. So I give in to help Akimi-san. Her little fingers emerged, and she ducked from behind the curtain, keeping her face turned away from me as though I had not already seen her clearly. She left and never looked back. I didn't chase her. The important thing was the address and telephone number. I yanked back the curtain and picked up the paper that she left for me. Everything was written in kanji. No problem. I sped over to Yoyogi to meet Chiasa.